was the great Union cavalry leader of the Civil War? Was it John Buford? Maybe George Armstrong Custard? Phil Sheridan? Even Alfred Pleasanton? We'll ask these questions and more of Civil War historian Eric Wittenberg when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today, talking with Eric Wittenberg about Union Cavalry in the Civil War. In our first session, we talked about the initial problems some of the cavalry encountered and some of the reasons why it lacked effectiveness in the first months, even the first years of the war. By 1863, we see the Union Cavalry beginning to operate as a uh, more concentrated force in uh, whole regiments, even brigades together. Eric, you mentioned that the Union at first did not want to, uh, or Halleck in particular. No, actually it was Winfield Scott. I'm sorry, Winfield Scott. I'm, I'm jumping ahead to the next general-in-chief. Um, that Winfield Scott did not want to use volunteer regiments of cavalry. And it makes sense, as you pointed out, it takes a long time to train people to ride and certainly to train the horses and to train, uh, train the two together to ride in formation. But apparently they were able to do so uh, relatively quickly to get these units uh, operational. Faster than anybody expected, and, and if you need to see evidence of that, all you really need to do is take a look at this combined arms operation during the Peninsula Campaign, which was, I'll grant you, was largely the regular cavalry, but it also included Russia's Lancers, and certainly the operations that were conducted under George or uh, John Pope's Army of Virginia during what becomes the second Manassas campaign. John Buford and uh, George D. Bayard are absolutely brilliant during that campaign. Bayard 
fights the first you know, full-scale brigade-sized combat against the Confederate cavalry during the Second Manassas Campaign, what was the first Battle of Brandy Station in August of 62, and, and some of the scouting and, and recon work that Buford does during the Second Manassas Campaign is some of the finest recon work done in all of the American Civil War. I mean, Buford himself sat up on a bluff at Gainesville and personally counted the regiments of Longstreet's Corps marching by on their way to the battlefield at, at Second Manassas, sent the intel on to uh, General Ricketts. Ricketts, in turn, sent it on to Irvin McDowell, who, for reasons that remain a mystery, stuck the dispatch in his pocket and sat on it for a number of hours before he bothered to pass it on to Pope. And then, of course, Pope didn't believe him, but... You know, it's certainly not Buford's fault that those things happened. The, the point is, is that he did some of the most brilliant scouting and recon work that that was done in all the war, and this is as early as August of 1862. Now, that obviously is one of the roles, the primary roles of the cavalry in the Civil War, to uh, uh, to scout the enemy and to to screen the the friendly forces from enemy scouts. But you also mentioned you said uh, Baird's brigade was involved in a uh, in a brigade-sized action at this time. Is that right? Yes. In August of 62, um, Bayard fights a brigade-sized action. Really, I think, if I remember correctly, there may even have been two Confederate brigades involved. Uh, I know Fitz Lee's brigade was involved, and I think it's possible that Hampton's was, too, um, at Fleetwood Hill on, Brand on what is we today commonly refer to as the Brandy Station battlefield. So now, in this battle, do... Does one side or do both sides fight mounted or dismounted? Little of both. I, I'm, I've always had a hard time picturing Civil War cavalry combat, uh, particularly mounted combat. Uh, is, is it your understanding that literally one side would essentially sit still and let the other side uh, ride up to them and then start hacking away with sabers? No, that's not the case at all. Okay. What, what goes on on a cavalry battlefield? Chaos. <laughs> that's, that's the best simple answer to your question. It's chaos. It's momentary chaos. Both sides will draw sabers. They will gallop. Horses will come together in a violent collision. Uh, some of the descriptions of the fighting in East Cavalry Field at, Bat at Gettysburg describe the, the coming together of the two sides mounted charges being so violent that horses were flipped over backwards from the, the violence of the conflict. Uh, Men would be knocked from their saddles. Uh, there'd be hand-to-hand -hand combat using pistols and sabers. Um, it, it was quite literally looking your enemy in the eye, unlike so many infantry fights, which are conducted at further distance. Now, horses would actually run into each other. I mean, I, my understanding is the horse is a fairly intelligent animal and won't hurl itself into a row of bayonets, for example. Correct. But I guess if they're... Are they riding boot to boot so there's no choice but to run into the uh, oncoming horses? That's pretty much the case. That I, I had uh, one semester I had a, a student who was a military veteran who had served in a ceremonial cavalry unit. Uh, so I've actually talked to a cavalry officer, uh, mounted cavalry, and he, he said the horses were very good at keeping in column formation. They are herd animals. And once the first four get going, the next four will follow, and so on. Uh, the, the difficulty is in getting them started or stopped. Right. But if they all start doing the same thing, they'll all do it. Correct. So if you get a line going, presumably they'll all head toward the enemy. And well, plus the animals were were accustomed to that because they've been they've been drilling it. 
so so this was so not just the men but the horses are drilled uh, to respond Absolutely. to commands. Yeah, when when you train a cavalry regiment, there you do mounted drill and you do dismounted drill. And therein lies one of the differences, of course, between cavalry and infantry. Is that cavalry had to know how to fight mounted and dismounted, as opposed to simply fighting mounted or fighting dismounted. Had to be able to do both. And one of the reasons why I've always admired Russia's lancers is because they had to master more weapons than any unit in the army. They had to master the lance, they had to master the carbine, they had to master the saber, they had to master the pistol. No, I, not to spend too much time with, with uh, Russia's exotic lancer unit, but I'm, they are fascinating. And if the lance had really been a superior cavalry weapon, presumably both sides would have used it more widely. Correct, and the reason why it was successful in Europe, but not so successful in in Virginia in particular, was you know Europe. There weren't a lot of massive forests, and and if you need an example of this, take a good look at the uh, the Waterloo battlefield, where a mounted charge was one of the critical factors at the end of the battle, uh, and lancers participated. Lots of wide open areas. Virginia, on the other hand, was lots of thick, dense undergrowth forests, and that type of terrain really doesn't lend itself very well to lances, and it was soon found to be an impractical weapon under those circumstances, and that's why it was ultimately abandoned. Well, I, I, I hear that very clearly. I've argued elsewhere in print uh, against the primacy of the rifled musket as being particularly significant in Civil War tactics on the grounds that the terrain at most battlefields is so broken up and the fields of fire are so short that the smoothbore weapon would have been, in many cases, adequate to do the same thing that the rifle could do. There are exceptions like, like Gettysburg, but uh, in many cases it is closed terrain. And that brings uh, to me to the question about dismounted tactics. If cavalry can't charge because there's no open meadow to charge across, then you've got your men dismounted and fighting in a skirmish line. Correct. And, you know, that, that raises another issue, too, because as, as you're probably aware, by, by 1861, 1862, 1863, technology advances are, are really changing the, the, the battlefield landscape because certainly by the time of the fall of 1863, in September 1863 in particular, the Spencer carbine goes into mass production. And the Spencer is a seven-shot semi-automatic weapon, and... You also begin to see the development of the Henry rifle at that point, which is a 16-shot, nearly automatic weapon. You can lay down a tremendous amount of fire with weaponry like that. So that's going to change tactics. Tact you load on Sunday and fire all week. Exactly. Yeah. So technology drives tactics in many instances. And, you know, let's face it, if you have your choice between a Henry rifle that can, can lay down 16 shots or charging at somebody with a 9-foot-long lance, what are you going to do? Uh, so obviously, uh, it, there's that that scene back in uh, oh the, the Indiana Jones, uh, the first movie some 20 years ago, where the, uh, the the Western explorer confronts a brave native warrior with an elaborate with a huge scimitar, arts, yes. scimitar, and he just calmly pulls out his pistol and shoots him from a distance. Exactly. Uh, it's a good all, analogy, Jerry. All, all of the saber work in the world doesn't help if the other guy's got a, a, a firearm. Exactly. Now, who among Union Cavalry commanders mastered this new technology? Who, who do you think was the best of the Union Cavalry leaders? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that the finest cavalry officer that the North produced in all of the war 
was John Buford. Um, Buford was a dragoon, and I, I guess it's important to to draw the di- the distinctions between the different classifications of, of cavalry prior to 1861 when the distinctions were were done away with. But if you follow the Napoleonic model, which is what the U.S. Mounted Forces were typically organized under, there were different jobs that were done by different types of mounted forces. You had heavy cavalry in the Napoleonic model, which was typically used to make charges against massed infantry, uh, such as the charge at Waterloo. Then you had light cavalry, which was typically armed with or mounted on smaller horses. They weren't armored. They typically carried carbines and pistols. You had lancer units. You had and then you had dragoon units. Dragoon units were armed with traditional cavalry weapons, but they also carried carbines. And they were trained to fight mounted and dismounted, and they were equally effective. The Army in the year, the U.S. Army never adopted the light versus heavy cavalry distinction, but it, uh, in 1861, just before the prior, or just before the, the, the opening shots were fired at Fort Sumter, there were five mounted units assigned to the U.S. Army. Two of them were dragoon units, two of them were light cavalry units, and one of them was called the Regiment of Mounted Rifles, and it was just what it sounds like. You, these men carried infantry weapons. They did not have carbines. They did not have sabers. They did not have revolvers. They simply used their horses to move from place to place, dismounted, and fought as infantry. John Buford was a dragoon, which meant that he had to be equally adept at fighting mounted and dismounted, and... I think he proved his merit on the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg conducting uh, an absolutely textbook covering force action that's still taught in classrooms today. He had, uh, well, he had three brigades, I guess he had two brigades present that day. Correct. Uh, of, of cavalry, so we're talking a few thousand men. Roughly, between the two brigades, about 4,000. And they withstand the attack of uh, first Heath's division, then Pender's division, uh, two very large Confederate infantry divisions. Followed by Rhodes, and then, you know, Rhodes then gets into the fight, too. That's right. One after they, they, they come in on the flank, and until First Corps arrives to relieve them, they hold off this massive force. And out, out of those 4,000 men, of course, they're not all on the firing line because you've got the horse holders. Correct, and, and that's an important fact that you raised, Jerry. When when cavalry fights dismounted, something has to be done with the horses, and what that means is that one out of every four men is going to have to hold his horse and that of three comrades to hold them, A, in a safe place, and B, in order to provide uh, an opportunity for those men to mount up and move if they need to. So that means your effective fighting force is automatically reduced by 25% the minute you make the choice to fight dismounted. Why didn't, at at Gettysburg, why didn't the Confederate infantry just stand off at, say, 300 yards outside the range of the the, the cavalry carbine and and just fire volleys of of rifled musketry at them? Wasn't how it was done. Number one. Number two, if if you believe what Henry Heath said, he did not believe he was fighting dismounted cavalry. He believed he was fighting militia. And therefore you just go forward and chase those miserable losers away. Exactly. Uh, but it turns out, no, that's, that's the Army of the Potomac they're facing. Exactly. And, and Buford designed and conducted a textbook covering force action that, that is still taught uh, on staff rides and at staff colleges to the present day 
the tactics that Buford conducted at Gettysburg, I might add, are precisely the same tactics that were NATO doctrine in Europe at Fulda Gap, which was where they expected the Soviets' break, armored breakthrough to come through. Uh, the U.S. armored cavalry units there were going to use precisely the same tactics that John Buford fought at Gettysburg. It really is interesting how the more things change, the more they remain the same. It is. Unfortunately, they were never called upon to put those into operation. Correct. Now, uh, Buford died not long after Gettysburg. December 16, 1863, of typhoid fever. So... To the general public, other than those who see the movie Gettysburg, uh, he's not particularly well known. Uh, there are other conf other Union cavalry leaders much better known. Uh, George Armstrong Custer comes to mind. What kind of a cavalry general was he outside of Little Bighorn? That, that's an interesting question because for many years my perceptions of George Custer were, of course, molded by the way he met his end. And it, it took me a long time to be able to sit back and, and, and say, okay, we need to set June 25, 1876 aside completely and look at him from 1861 to 65. And I've spent a lot of time doing that over the course of the years because I've done a lot of work on the Michigan Brigade. And on one hand, this is a guy who was perhaps the luckiest man in the United States of America. He Just in the first week that he was a general officer, he had three horses shot out from under him. At the same time, though, he was a guy who, had he died the way George Patton always said he wanted to die, of the last battle, of the last bullet, of the last war, in other words, if Custer had died on April 9, 1865, he may very well be remembered as the greatest cavalryman America ever produced. What, what did he do that was uh, so noteworthy? The guy had an ability to inspire men to follow his lead. And, you know, he has this perception of being reckless, and in some ways he was. He was had the, the courage of a lion, but his men loved him, and they literally would have followed him into hell, at least during the Civil War. Of course, that, that changed when he got into the, the regular Army 7th Cavalry in the years after the war, when he couldn't get along with his officers. But in the Civil War, it's amazing how, how men would have, would follow him anywhere, and he was a hard hitter, and uh, at the same time, though, his, his recklessness did cost. I mean, he, he pitched in to, to the fray at Trevilian Station without without sending out scouts and, and seeing what was in front of him, and, and ends up getting completely encircled. I mean, when I wrote my book, I just I titled that chapter Custer's First Last Stand, because the parallels between what happens to him on June 11, 1864 at Trevilian Station and what happens to him on the Little Bighorn are really striking. And fortunately for Custer, his luck held in 1864, and he was able to hold out long enough for reinforcements to get to him and cut their way through, whereas obviously that didn't happen at the Little Bighorn. So Custer's a little bit of a double-edged sword. You know, he's a glory hunter. He's a guy who was interested in in promoting himself and advancing his own career. Same time, though, he was a guy that the men loved, and and that's an interesting combination because there certainly were plenty of officers that the men in the ranks despised, and Custer was rarely one of those men. Now, I've read uh, letters of of one of Custer's men, in addition that you edited, uh, and certainly bears out the favorable opinion that Custer's men had of him. 
and you've written a number or edited other things. You mentioned uh, a book in particular. Uh, share the title with us. Well, there are two, actually. There was one book that I did that was The Letters of James Harvey Kidd, who was uh, started out as a captain and ended up as the colonel of the 6th Michigan Cavalry and was actually Custer's hand-picked successor to command the Michigan Brigade when Custer was promoted to division command in, in October of 64. Kidd was a newspaper man, and he was a terrific writer, and I, I enjoyed his writings. The other work that I did was I was asked to edit a journal of a, of a sergeant of the uh, 5th Michigan Cavalry, which I came out under the title Under Custer's Command. It was published by Brassie several years back, and it, it's an interesting companion volume to go along with Kid because you get the you get the fawning, almost fawning reflections of somebody who, who idolized George Custer juxtaposed against a, a sergeant in the ranks who rarely had any direct dealings with general officers and who, who you're getting a look at, at the enlisted man's viewpoint on things. Well, we'll come back in a moment, talk perhaps more about Custer and some other Union cavalrymen. Um, in particular, Phil Sheridan. I'd like to ask you about him. We'll talk about that in a minute when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. 